Hi, the following podcast is brought to you by Radical Road Brewery, the best craft beer in the heart of Leslieville. Find them at 1177 Queen Street East. That's Radical Road Brewery. Hi, I'm Brad Merritt. I play bass guitar in the Canadian rock band 5440, and welcome to the music. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Brad, it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, I have to take you back to not my first memory, but it might be my first time seeing you guys live, which was um, Molson Park, 1988, I think. Um, I know you headlined, I think, the next year. Um, can can you can you can we start this off? Can you talk about sort of back then and what shows like that meant to you guys? Yeah, well, so uh, and Neil touched on this in show. Uh, the first time we came out to Toronto was 1986. We already been a band for five years, and um, uh, yeah, so we were kind of a West Coast band that went up and down the West Coast. So. Getting to Toronto in uh, 86, I guess our first show was at the, what was called the Diamond Club back then, yeah. the Phoenix. And then that summer we did uh, the, the the one in the round, you know, where... Uh, the amphitheater? Stereo place, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we went, oh, you know, and then just a, like you say, uh, I want to say it's probably 88 was our first Edge Fest up there in Barrie. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I don't know how many people were there, 35 or 40,000 people. It was overwhelming. Uh, we uh, were completely gratified <laughs> that, uh, you know, that we were becoming a national band and not just kind of a, a West Coast band. That's fantastic. Yeah, you, t- you talked about yesterday about uh, the role Erica M played uh, in, in really helping hmm. you guys get a lot of uh, exposure. Uh, but I wanted Brad... To t- just ask you about that drive to your first gig uh, mm. 42 years ago yesterday. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. You guys are listening to the radio. John Lennon has mm-hmm. just been shot. Um, and you're playing literally your first gig. Obviously, you have no clue that 42 years from now, uh, you'll, you'll be packing out the horseshoe for three nights straight. But... Are you guys excited that you're going to be playing? Like, what's going through your minds? So, yeah. So, um, you know, uh, we bo- both were, uh, Neil and I, uh, and our drummer at the time, um, uh, we, we were, uh, yeah, we, we got quite serious very quickly. Kind of in November of 1980, we started kind of rehearsing. I learned some songs that he wrote. And then, uh, um uh, you know, I was creating songs as well. And, and then, um, we did a couple of cover songs. Uh, uh, you probably might recall, uh, the song, uh, slave to my dick by <laughs> kind of like a Peter gun baseline, you know? Yeah. So Monday was kind of an open mic night, you know, where they, where they kind of host this thing. And so people come up and sing songs or whatever. And uh, I guess Neil asked David if we could just sort of plug into their gear and, and if, uh, if uh, our drummer could use their kit. 
and we're going to show up and play four songs, right? Uh, uh, and uh, so that was the plan. Uh, so it was late. Um, I'm going to say it was um, like nine o'clock or nine thirty. I jumped into my, my truck through the base in the back and uh, head into the show, and then turn on the radio and find out that that John Lennon had been shot. Um, yeah, it was it was an emotional emotional day for us. Uh, you know, he was. Uh, <laughs> He's like uh, he was the center of our of our musical universe. Um, so it was a it was um, it was a very it was tough, you know. Um, so obviously <clears throat> getting there and then and talking with David and and uh, you know other musicians were hanging around there. Uh, not that we were kind of musicians at the time, but we we, we wanted to be. Um, uh, you know, we were all uh, it, it. The whole evening was quite subdued. Um, so yeah, I mean, so it was a mixed, a mixed thing. Obviously, being excited to play, but uh, yeah, we, we reflect on this often, um, and uh, yeah, it's hard to, to put it in its proper context. I mean, it's, it's think about I, listen. One of the things that about every day is the Beatles. It's just I mm -hmm. can't help pops into your head, or uh, you know, a solo uh, effort by one of the members, or a quote by John Lennon or some sort of funny quip or what, or whatever it is, a scene from one of the movies. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, it was a watershed moment and the history of, of popular music. It's something that, uh, that we, we took to heart. Um, and you know, we wanted to, <laughs> uh, continue on, um, the legacy of, of, of John Lennon. I mean, to the best of our ability. Yeah. Makes sense. And, and of course we all know it was an overnight success for you guys. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. Of course, I'm kidding. Of course. Um, I, I, you know, I've, I've heard you talk about it. Can you, can you tell us sort of that road? Cause it's not an overnight success from that gig to your first major label release. Yeah. So, um, yes. <laughs> yeah. That's, that, that's one of the best parts of, of the whole band. Which is, you know, like the formative years. You know, when you're yeah. naive, uh, you have energy and confidence and ability, um, but you're curious and you're anxious to learn and you're anxious to get better at what you do. And um, you know, uh, so very early on, I I, I got a van. You know, uh, uh, my my father <laughs> helped helped me with the. the with the, with the bank loan and, you know, co-signed all that. And so we took some, you know, some, some risks and, and, uh, you know, Neil and I were from the very beginning, we're serious and committed. And, um, so a lot of that just involved, you know, trying to get gigs around Vancouver. And then we, uh, <clears throat> we got this great connection down in Seattle and started playing Seattle more than we started playing in Vancouver. Um, uh, getting across the border was a little bit easier, uh, back then. Uh, but eventually we started having trouble. So we had to rely on my father to actually sneak our gear across the border in the van. <laughs> he had a little more gravitas rather than a 21 year old. <laughs> and we, and then, you know, we drive his car across and then switch and then away we'd go. And then we started playing shows in, in Portland, especially San Francisco. And, uh, uh, made some friends down there, started going down there. By 1982, we were kind of a band that could play San Francisco. Uh, we opened up for Public Image Limited, uh, Johnny Lydon's band uh, in 82, at 3,000 people. 
Um, once again, it's still, like I say, naive and learning what it is that we uh, And then 84, we got down to Los Angeles. Uh, we we'd released a couple of independent records, get traction in college charts. Um, record companies are coming out to our shows. Uh, our song Sound of Truth was on a sub-pop uh, a compilation. Uh, that was a Seattle uh, uh, record company, like, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, so, yeah, things are starting to happen for us. And once again, it's all on the western side of the Rocky Mountains, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, and then a few forays actually into Alberta, you know, about the same time. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so then eventually we get signed to, we get signed to, uh, to Warner Brothers uh, in Burbank, California in 1986. Then we get, you know, a release on a, on a major label and uh a proper release in canada and started coming to toronto uh points further east uh, montreal ottawa and uh and then of course we're just doing the whole north american circuit for several years so which was very very intense but uh yeah so like i say it's it's the, the formative years were um something that uh, yeah they formed us yeah yeah what was um you know when neil was talking yesterday about not getting airplay in canadian rock stations i'm not i, I can't remember if it's a canadian rock stations or if he meant out in toronto especially out east east of where you guys were at um yeah what what was what was up with that was there any reason or did he, or did you just need someone like an eric or whoever it was to finally start spinning your tunes. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, well, uh, <laughs> there was a, <clears throat> a big consolidation within, uh, radio. We used to have all these little independent radio stations and then essentially they became these big, uh, And so, uh, and the photo off of their playlists are controlled centrally and they're very conservative. They're, they're trying to sell advertising. So, you know, it's not about, you know, it's it's far past you know you know Alan Freed and the start of rock and roll right so it's very corporate and the coolest radio station in the country was Much Music I mean they were the ones that had these you know the Wedge and these these programs of independent music and uh, they already played you know one of our the video that we did from our independent record uh, songs called What to Do Now uh, album Set the Fire uh, so they were familiar with us so when our record came out on Warner Brothers and Baby Ran was the uh, the single and and the video um it got spotty play you know light medium rotation on some stations in canada but much music played the shit out of it and and so did mtv actually in the united states mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it was a great video uh tamra davis directed it she went on to do feature films and all sorts of stuff and um yeah so uh you know, it, it really launched us. I mean, I don't know if we'd be here without without much music. Uh, it, it, and it was such a, it was, uh, it, uh, it was on, it, it was the zeitgeist. You know, it was in and of itself, you know, separate from everything that it created or, 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 um, uh, or brought to the, to the forefront. It, it was, it was something unto itself that people would pay attention to. And it, 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 we're grateful for that. So music today has changed in 
not just what people are i guess what people are listening to or or how they're listening to it you, you talk about the importance for your band of of a, a channel like much music um today my goodness you've got you know things like spotify amazon music apple music streaming and many artists have gone on social media or opined uh, about you know how many streams they need to uh to get to be able to go to starbucks for example <laughs> um obviously you guys uh have been in the business for a while you you were fortunate enough to come up in a time where uh yes it was touring but there was actually money to be made uh from selling albums and, and whatnot do you do you and Neil and the band ever talk about, you know, the streaming of today and and, and as you're making new music, um, what it what that means in terms of how you write or what you write? Uh, no, uh, that's just for that. Um, yeah, you're right though. We've been around. Uh, we <laughs> when we started, uh, uh, you know, we would organize a recording studio. We were kind of versed in this a little bit because, uh, you know, we just knew people that, that were kind of, uh, you know, interested in what we were doing and they were kind of helpful and, and we worked together at the time. Um, and, uh, but you know, you, then after that you had to, you know, get it mastered and then you had to, you had to get it manufactured, you know, you had to do all the artwork and put it all together. And there's companies, one here in Toronto that, that pressed it a couple thousand copies of set the fire. So then we'd get them all back in boxes, you know, off a, off a truck. And, and then we would have to distribute them, you know, to distributors. <laughs> so like uh, city hall and other ones down in the United States. And then we sent it to this pool of college radio stations so that they all had their own copy, their little play copy. And um, that's the way it was. And of course now, as you know, um, you guys could come up with something. You could actually do it with AI. You wouldn't have to do it yourself. And you could call it something, and you could have it out on Spotify tomorrow. So uh, the whole the way music's made is kind of similar, although we're in a digital kind of thing. But the way it's distributed is completely different. It's accessible to everybody. And um, Neil and I have had existential conversations, you know, like when uh, the whole Napster thing came and file sharing and, every person in every record company that we knew was, you know, getting walked out the door. Uh, and they, they, the whole industry just kind of collapsed. Uh, uh, we felt that we were in a good position to sort of keep on going and sort of figure this out. Um, but, and we have, you know, we, we make a living at this. It's not like, uh, you know, uh, so it's, I don't want anyone to feel sorry for us. <laughs> it's everything's going to be fine. But yeah, we, we get reports from uh, Spotify and Apple Music every month, and we get uh, you know hundreds of thousands of play uh, on a variety of songs, a bunch of songs, and uh, it doesn't amount to much financially. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, having our music out there, you know, having you know millions and millions of streams on probably I don't know twenty songs that we do, um, it it makes people appreciate the music or it gives them the opportunity to do that. And then they might want to come out and see us play. Right. So, and that's almost the only way you can make, make money in the music business right now is actually playing live. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's interesting because 
to see that change from the time you guys started when it was cassettes through to you know streaming today um one of the one of the sort of periods in there that i was i was wanting to ask you about um it, it was almost like you guys had to maybe i'm paraphrasing this incorrectly but you know, sort of had to go to the u.s to come back to canada and the success you had whereas um you know i remember and again i was a musician at the time uh 9091 Sloan getting signed to Geffen and all of a sudden we were like Canadians can do this and do this big again we all know how that went but you know it was an exciting time can you talk about sort of that time and so from a Canadian musician perspective and what was changing around then sort of that early 90s yeah uh well we we were without a record deal at the time uh so we did uh, three records uh, with Warner Brothers, uh, the Green Record, and then we did uh, Show Me, and then we did um, Fight for Love. And then, so there's another time where you could have said, well, we'll pack it in. <laughs> and we said, to do, and we wrote a bunch of songs and hung out and still played shows. And uh, 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 Warner Brothers uh, in Canada, uh, we are. Uh, uh, they put out a, a, a greatest hits record and uh you know that was helpful sort of for the transition then we signed this to uh sony music canada uh on a worldwide deal with them and uh did uh dear dear in 1992. so so that early 90s kind of thing yeah it, it did feel like anything's possible right and that things were rolling you know um you know, we saw uh, what happened with Sloan. We saw what happened with uh, a band called Copyright. Um, you know, we'd seen, you know, artists like uh, Katie Lang, you know, who, you know, uh, went on to, you know, international fame. Uh, and so, and she did her own thing, her own way. And uh, so we could identify with that. So, uh, yeah, so we were, we were still quite confident. And so then once we did the deal with Sony, we just, Got, got right back at it, uh, trying to write the best songs we could, record them the best we possibly could, and, and uh, you know, put one foot in front of the other. And uh, that's kind of what we still do. Absolutely. Greg, Greg and I have been fortunate enough to have uh, so many different guests over the past couple of years. Uh, one of, probably one of the most important guests we've had is Art Bergman. Oh, yeah. And obviously... There must have been some influence, you guys, being out west, um, and and I think you know you can hear it in some of your music, some of your songs that there's that sort of punk element there, you know, whether it's some of the lyrics or or the uh, the, the playfulness of Neil and the band. Um, I don't know. Can can you share maybe his influence, whether it's him or the scene on on fifty four forty? Absolutely huge. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, it's, you know, and art in particular too, uh, you know, he, at the time, uh, he was in my favorite band. They were called the K-Tels and then K-Tel made them change their name and they became the young Canadians. And, uh, I loved them and I love their songs and art, uh, especially, I guess I would say. Um, and, and so huge influence and, whether we started the band or not, I consider myself very fortunate to have been in Vancouver in the late 70s and early 80s. 
just to see him <clears throat> and see the young Canadians and see GOA and the subhumans and the dish rags. I'm wearing my dish rag shirt here right now. Um, uh, and piles of other bands too, you know. Um, and uh, it was absolutely, it influenced us. Uh, uh, <laughs> it, just, it still does, you know. Um, it's and it's uh, something that'll always be with us, and and we're grateful to have it. It's like the Beatles, you know. Uh, here I'm comparing us to the Beatles, uh, but uh, so uh, you know, where the way you know, like 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 Little Richard, you know, uh, influenced Paul McCartney, you know, or the Skiffle Sound influenced, you know, you know John Lennon's early songwriting records, or how he played, you know, rhythm guitar, or you know, it's uh, it's something that. Uh, yeah, we acknowledge uh, freely and uh, are grateful to have been a part of. And, you know, <clears throat> when we started out, our my ambition, my personal ambition was to get a gig opening up for one of these bands, you know, like the Young Canadians, and play at the Commodore Ballroom and make $150 and have, you know, a thousand people see us. That would have been if 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 I could just do that, then I could die happy. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. So you know, in, in you Commodore, many venues uh, on the West Coast, across Canada, and 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 uh, other places as well. Um, last night at the Horseshoe, you guys are doing a weekend residency there to help celebrate seventy-five years of the Horseshoe. Um, what does that venue mean to you as a West Coast band? Is, yeah. is it as important to you guys as it is to us kids out here in Toronto? I don't, I don't think it could be um, because, you know, as I getting back to the formative years, which seems to be a theme with us, um, you know, we, we, I had no knowledge of it. You know, I probably didn't even hear about it until we were a band for several years. Um, you know, I, uh, my, the only time I went to Toronto was, uh, <laughs> as a kid, when I was living in Ohio, <laughs> I came up with my parents, uh, you know, so it was, it's, it, and then, you know, then we're talking about a time when, you know, there wasn't really mass communication, you know, I mean, you, you know, <laughs> we barely had satellite technology. <laughs> so mm. Toronto was a world away, right? And uh, the thing is about uh, Vancouver is that it was extremely isolated, right? You had the had the border, you had the Rocky Mountains, and so it was its own little incubator that was not influenced much by what was happening anywhere else, right? Other than you know possibly you know getting you know records from England or New York or whatever uh, that influenced the scene. But so uh, yeah, so horseshoe, so horseshoe, something we came into. So when we started coming to Toronto, we realized very quickly that on nights off, that was the place to go. That was the place where you're going to see a band that you either liked or was up and coming. Or so, so that's kind of when we, uh, you know, came into kind of a knowledge and appreciation for the horseshoe. Of course, now, you know, uh, as the older we get, you know, the more we appreciate uh, history and things which are older. <laughs> so I wish the horseshoe cavern is one and uh yeah so we realize that it's you know in a, an iconic place and an important place in canadian musical history yeah absolutely absolutely um it's funny i think my parents told me that one of their first dates 
was they went to the horseshoe and it wasn't even for music it was just for dinner at that time or you know there was music in the back but anyway it, 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 i guess without the horseshoe maybe i wouldn't be here i don't know anyway um what the, the one of the things i wanted to t ask you about because i i like I, I don't know if you guys have talked talk much about this or not uh, i didn't come across much is um around the the whole thing of hootie covering the song and the impact and sort of like how what did that do for you guys did it do for you guys how did it change things for you guys well it uh i'm just gonna just watch this uh goal here there we yeah. go one one so uh it well first of all i'll tell you how the whole thing got started yeah. with those please we were touring in the united states a lot in the late 1980s i did three records down there and uh we got a little traction kind of in what I call the, the Southeastern Conference, you know, the Southeast Conference, which is kind of that, you know, kind of Virginia, you know, down to North Florida, over to Georgia, over to Atlanta kind of thing. And um, so the Hootie guys <clears throat> were going to university at University of South Carolina, but two of the guys, Mark and Dean, were from Maryland. So we would come down to and play a club in Washington, D.C. called the 930 Club, and they would come out play like every single time and then they, they're kids right and we're not much older um and they would say like oh we love you guys you know we we were in a little frat band and we play every single song off the green record right so it was a record which influenced bands like them you know i can tell you another story about that but we'll stick with this one here and uh so that's how the whole thing got started and uh i guess we were up in snow job up in Banff or whatever, doing a much music concert out there in the snow uh, below zero temperatures, freezing. And then someone said, hey, you know, the, this band, Who and the Blowfish, they've covered I Go Blind, and it's the B-side of their first single, right? So, <clears throat> which sells, I don't know how many copies, you know, a few. And then they just take off that record, that album becomes, you know, that and the Atlantis Marset record were the mm -hmm. massive 17, 18 million copies or whatever. And, and we were we were lamenting why didn't they put it on the album because we would have just with mechanical royalties on that would have been huge for us. We found out it was the last song that was cut from the record, and then they made another record and they didn't put it on that record either. So, but between those records, <clears throat> an executive I think from Atlantic had asked for a contribution for this uh, compilation record that he was making for the uh, Friends TV show for the friends uh, soundtrack and um so uh where are we now here yeah so yeah so they get the song it's on the friends soundtrack and even though it was never released as a single it becomes the de facto fifth or sixth single for those guys and radio just starts picking up a few stations and eventually it becomes you know a top 10 uh hit uh, in the united states um you know, Neil and I uh, went down to LA to receive an ASCAP award because it was one of the songs uh, played on American radio, right? Uh, uh, and uh, it helped financially. <laughs> so, you know, it did change my life that way. It's like, uh, I remember, you know, coming back from a rehearsal with Neil and I was kind of complaining about just finances, which you do a lot when you're in the music business. And, uh, I came back and uh, Chris goes, oh, there's a SoCan check for you. That's when he used to come in checks rather than being direct deposit to your bank. And I opened up and it was a, it was a life 
changing check amounts, you know? <laughs> it allowed me to, to pay down some debt, get a natural gas fireplace, and renovate the bathroom. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I remember I remember we were we were touring with uh Frozen Ghost um back in the day and uh I am our band and I remember the tour ended quite abruptly and I think Arnold said he bought back the rights to to um, with baby uh, baby you know but anyway the one that went absolutely massive but he had just bought it back for the he said for the cost of a used car or something but he bought back all of his royalties and then when that song exploded in the u.s that was the end of our tour <laughs> it's like yeah going to the studio taking some time off okay yeah yeah that, so it is it's a life-changing kind of thing and it kind of just i mean we also took it as kind of validation uh you know i remember sitting around in a oh god i wish i could name the name of the deli What's the deli here? It's this, it's a chain, but anyway, we're in Ottawa, and I think I had a copy of of, of Billboard. <laughs> Remember magazines? <laughs> and, thing, and and it's like, you know, we, we knew we were good when we were signed to Warner Brothers in the U.S. and and we knew that we had something. There was a you know an it factor in their songs, and we knew we could make this thing go. And then to see that song go for another band, it was like, yeah, well, you know, it just it felt good. It really did. Good for you. So we we love stories, Brad, and so I'm I'm gonna ask for, for two stories to to maybe end this off. Um, you you talked about as you were talking about Hootie and the Blowfish that there were some other bands that uh, uh, were sort of in that orbit of influence of uh, of fifty four forty. Um, was wondering if maybe you could share one of those other bands and if there's a story there. The bands that influenced us that you influenced oh yeah so that's that's hard to to gauge um but yeah no i i think i think that that's the case i uh it's be presumptuous of me to say who we influenced yeah <laughs> or, or, or maybe maybe i got it wrong there but you, you talked about there were some other bands that uh similar to like hootie and the blowfish uh that that would talk about you know that they play all your songs and um yeah. and, and then you reference that you know you've there's some other stories around that as well Oh yeah, so we we uh, our first uh, tour was our first tour. Back camera, we were on a bus anyway. Yeah, we were on a bus and we finished up the tour on the west coast. Yeah, opening up for the Bodines. We did a whole sort of midwestern swing and then up to Seattle and then down the west coast. We finished at the Whiskey a Go Go in Los Angeles, and then we had the Deadhead in the bus. So everyone's in the bus all the way over to Richmond, Virginia, where we're picking up a, a tour with Bob Mould, who was in Husker Du, and we did like seven or eight shows with him. And so we so we get there the night before the show, and uh, you know, I think we actually have a hotel room. It was great, because I think I remember having a shower. <laughs> and uh, yeah, then we went out, we went out and had a bite to eat, and then we went to this club, and this band, kind of a local, band whatever and uh watched them they were really good doing mostly cover songs a few originals whatever and then uh we started talking to them and then say so you you guys been yeah and it's like your 54 40 go and like we do i go blind you know and this is some and they're like music school students right and so and then then the next set they start off their next set with their version of i go blind so yeah there was there there i mean we definitely 
something connected with in that area for us. Like we did really well in Atlanta and, uh, you know, Chapel Hill and Virginia. And, you know, it's, it was a really, really cool thing. And then we even down into Texas a little bit. And I, I think it was, I don't know what it is, something in, something the way we played uh, worked for that. It's a regional. I don't understand it. I don't pretend to understand it, but it's, it existed. If it works, it works, right? So I want to get to this question about lost venues, Brad. Uh, you guys have played all over the place. Uh, a lot of iconic venues and maybe some venues that, that don't exist. So I'm, I'm curious if you have a story uh, about uh, a lost venue uh, that you've played in the past. Yes, I do. Many, many. <laughs> well, so um, I don't know if you should name names here, but you know, we, you know, we always, uh, we're, we, we, you know, we were ambitious. Uh, you know, as I think bands should be, right? They should want to try to reach as many people as possible. They should take you know, what they do seriously, and um, so, and we would play venues, and uh, you know, there's whatever it was. Like, cramped stage pa's not up to scratch it's just small or dingy or you think you should be better or treated better or whatever and we came up with the uh the uh this kind of list of venues like that we called it like the no playlist <laughs> we're not playing here anymore <laughs> and we give it to our agent right and then what would happen you know is the course you do a tour and that would be on it right so we actually uh you know, came up with this thing where it's like, you know, if you're going to say we will never play that venue again, you can be guaranteed that you're going to play that venue again. Very, you're very careful of what you said and what, what words you used. So uh, there's a, a, a venue called the Bebop Cafe in Regina. Um, uh, Sandy Pena uh, ran it with her family. Uh, she, she managed Andrew Cash and she came here trying. She's a a big wig here in Toronto now, but, uh, and she tried to make things work there and it was great, you know, but you know, the, the popular or the, the uh, capacity was like 48 or something like that. You know? <laughs> and the stage was, I don't think it was a stage. I think you just put a plate on the floor at the end of the room. And uh, yeah, you know, it's uh, at the time you go, this is not really much. And then you realize what it means to have somebody like that, that really wants you to play their place and get a few people out to see you. That's how it all starts. All those kinds of venues, the lost venues, you know, the 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 Wilders in North Bay, Ontario, you know, the big bucks in Burlington, you know, <laughs> downstairs, yeah. down on in in uh, in uh, McMaster University, right? Uh, you know, uh, whatever you want to say about these places, Louis Pub at the University of Saskatoon. They're important, right? And they're and uh, they don't the way they did when we were younger, where you know, where live music that was the way we communicated and and communed together, uh, you know, as young people. It was a cultural experience, and I was good on either side, side of that. Whether we were playing as a band on the stage or whether I was in the audience seeing another band play, I was just as happy. Um, I think I think these I think it's a really good thing you're doing that the lost venues. 
Thanks. Thanks. And, and well put. I mean, you, you can go on. I remember guests on the other day talking about call the office in London. I mean, it's just, it just there you go. Goes on and on. <laughs> yeah, yeah on. absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the questions I'd like to ask before we finish it off, Brad, is what are you listening to lately? What's in your earbuds or, in your, or your headphones or whatever that people should be checking out? Uh, uh, <laughs> lately, I've been listening to a lot of old kinks. <laughs> So it's like we I got to be the, the most underrated band of all time. You know, uh, I don't know what the hell happens, you know. Uh, but so that's where I am right now. I mean, the, the, the thing which grabs me right now that's newish is a band called Wet Leg. Oh, I love Wet Leg. I love that new album. It just goosebumps. It's so good and so... It's new, but it's old. Sound. Like it, like the, what they've done with that album is just unbelievable. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but yeah, Sorry. it's like so. Yeah, right. They so they, they their audience is very young, but like say generation. Oh yeah, I I get this right. It's like it's it's in my wheelhouse. You know, it's got the right attitude. Um, it's got the right pulse, uh, and they know what they're doing. Uh, I don't know if it's them, but the thing is, they seem to be like pure creators. And now part of something, uh, the band that they've you know put together and the people who produce the records. But yeah, yeah beyond the, the big single, uh, Chase Long, uh, it's uh, there's other really solid songs, right? And uh, it's you know I, I would like to have seen them. Uh, they came through Vancouver, played the Commodore in August, but I was out of town. Otherwise, I would have gone and seen them. Yeah, great choice, Brad. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been uh, a pleasure. Uh, again, the show last night at the Horseshoe uh, was just outstanding, just amazing. Uh, and you guys had a great band to uh, to open up for you, Ferraro. Um, great uh, up-and-coming uh, band that uh, Greg and I have seen a couple of times. Um, thank you so much for all the music over the past 42-plus years. Uh, and thanks for continuing to uh, to tour around the country. And thanks yeah, for well, your time today. Yes, thank you. Know, you. Yeah, well, having me, I, I've enjoyed this. It's been better than painless. So <laughs> that's what we try for. That's what we strive for. <laughs> Nailed it. We'll do it again sometime. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks, Brad. Appreciate your time. Okay, thanks, gentlemen. Thank you. Cheers. Take care. You too. Bye bye.